I've just come to value the imagination much more. I think I didn't have access to my own imagination in my late 20s and through most of my 30s. And now I do again. So it's really just a matter of like what tools are available to you and and your own self makes certain tools available to you at certain points in your life and withdraws them at others. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Sheila Hetty, author of the new novel, Pure Color. It is her fourth novel, maybe. Depends on whether her breakthrough book, How Should a Person Be, is correctly described as a novel, whether an earlier book, Ticknor, is a novel or a novella. And I would argue that this isn't a problem at all, because fans of Sheila Hetty's books, and I count myself as one, aren't really bothered about how each of them is classified. We're just happy that they exist and we can read them. And today, we get to talk about them, too, with the author, Sheila Hetty. Welcome to Kobo. Thanks so much. You have talked in the past about the difficulty of author interviews, which I totally understand. (laughs) So what can we do to make this as non-painful an author interview as possible? I mean, I don't find them painful. I enjoy interviews. It's just... You want to be able to convey, you know, how you wrote a book and everything like that. And it's hard to do because uh, I think like childbirth, probably the pain disappears and you can't quite get back to it. So once a book is done, all the doubts that fuel you for years and are actually the content of working, you know, they you can't. Yeah, it's hard to communicate what it feels like to work. And I think that so much of working um, on a book is you're sort of in the dark and you're, you know, trying to find your way through. And then when a book is done and you do interviews, you have to sort of create this narrative that makes and the narrative makes it seem so deliberate. And it's just yeah. So it's hard to really convey what it feels like to make something. I think you've said in the past quite reasonably, like, it's all in the book. I put everything in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So does it feel a little bit like you're being asked to kind of manufacture the story about the book after the fact? Yeah, I mean, I understand that people are curious about other people and that that's the function of interviews. I don't really think that they, they can tell you much more about the book than the book itself. Um, So I sort of see them in a different category. Like interviews are not really about the book. They're about these, the people that that you're curious about. We're all curious about how other people do their jobs. And that's, that's how I understand interviews. You originally wanted to be a playwright, I understand. Well, I mean, I I studied playwriting at the National Theatre School of Montreal. um, And I, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I really loved reading plays. I loved Joe Orton. I loved Oscar Wilde and Pinter and Ionesco. And I just, I kind of feel like there's something still of the playwright in me, even though I am a novelist or I consider myself a writer of books. I, I think that I just, I never liked in novels reading descriptions of places uh, or how people looked. I felt like the descriptions would never create pictures in my head. Like, mm-hmm. so they all felt always felt useless to me, but dialogue, I was always really captivated by the dialogue. So reading plays just felt like none of this, you know, it was only the good stuff and none, and none of the things that frustrated my imagination. And you worked as an actor as well. Was that as a, as an outgrowth of getting closer to plays or 
did you know did acting come first and playwriting come second uh I guess acting came first like when I was a child I I was uh, I guess I was like a bit of a child actress I mean I wasn't a very successful one but I went to auditions and I was in some commercials and I was in some plays and I I think that as a kid as an artistic kid you just try sort of try everything out and Mm -hmm. acting writing drawing photography you know directing everything and then you sort of realize that you're better at certain things than others. And I realized pretty quickly that as, as much as I liked acting, I, I didn't think that I was actually very good at it. Your books, How Should a Person Be? and Motherhood, each bring up big philosophical questions. And similarly with Pure Color, you go headfirst into, into metaphysics, really. What is a person? Why are we here? What is our relationship to culture? Why and how do we love? When you start a book like this, do you roll up your sleeves and say, I have big life altering questions I want to answer. Now is my time. <laughs> what, you know, what puts that, that range of questions and issues um, on the table for you to explore? I think that I just like thinking about that sort of thing anyway, even if I'm not working on a book. I I think that that's, um, I guess I like the unanswerable questions. Um, I prefer them. And I I think there's just so many mysteries. And so it's not really a matter of rolling up my sleeves and getting into a different mode. It's an extension of, of, of how I normally am. I find it fun. And to me, writing is, is a... Writing is a little bit like a game or a puzzle that I'm trying to solve. So, I uh, I should say we have we have Sheila Hetty and we also have uh, we have another guest in the room. Uh, would you like to introduce the other guest to us? Yes, this is my dog Feldman. He's a turning eight this summer. He's a Rottweiler, and he's very angry that two little dogs have come into this house that he thought was his. Even though we're just vacationing here for a few days, I think that he's already made this. So so we may get some editorial commentary from Feldman as we go through through the rest of this. Okay. So as, you know, as you say, this, you know, the, the wrestling with big ideas is something that you enjoy is just kind of a a natural extension of, um, of how you think about the world. Is that then something that you just enjoy exploring through the act of writing or are there their ideas or conclusions or thoughts that you're trying to get into other people's heads? Um, I mean, I guess it's both, but primarily it's what I want to think about at that time. And I want, you know, I write about what I want to get to the bottom of. I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, I mean, and then the idea that it's going to be in other people's heads sort of is secondary because I mean, I just sort of think we're all alike. And if something is interesting to me, chances are it'll be interesting to at least some other people. So I think starting from yourself is the only way to go. If I was just trying to imagine what other people would like, I would have no, I mean, I would have no idea where to start and I wouldn't be able to connect to it. Like in some ways, you know, writing a book, you have to pick a problem that you want to spend five years on. Um, And, and so it's actually just a matter of getting deeper and deeper and deeper to the to the unanswerable thing or the really emotionally pressing thing that will take that long, that will keep you interested in the project for that long. Um, and, I, you know, I start projects and I sort of abandon them because 
they they don't sustain that the, that year long the years long interest that I think is necessary to write a good book. Talking about that, my understanding is that this didn't start as a work of fiction. Uh, no, it did. I always thought it was going to be a novel. Oh, okay, I I think I had heard somewhere that there was or at least there was more of a focus on on art criticism on yeah, the notion of criticism gonna, that was still going to be the subject of a novel and and so then in the course of the of that writing did it just spread out farther in more different directions yeah and i think that's always what happens like you start somewhere and then you know it always it always surprises you um and you're sort of being led by your instincts day to day or not if I mean I don't work every day, but like the days that you work, you're you're led by your instincts into places that um, in the end, when you're finished, the book seem like they would always have those are those are the places you would always naturally have gone like how could the book have existed if you hadn't gone into those places so it all sort of seems inevitable at the end um especially after it's all put together and assembled um but yeah when you're starting it's just yeah entering a dark room and it's all darkness and you're sort of um just sort of following whatever little tiny little lights you can see and then hopefully by the end like the whole room is illuminated tell us a little bit about Mira is the main character who is a person, but is also a bird and sometimes a leaf. Um, yeah, so she's the she's sort of who we follow through the book. She's she starts out as a student at the American Academy of American Critics. So she wants to be an art critic. Um, and in the course of the novel, her father dies and she is in love with a woman. Um, that she meets sort of she's a woman who's sort of like adjacent to the school not a student there but um, named Annie who's an orphan and you know she's yeah she's a bird by which I mean you know in this sort of taxonomy of the book there's birds and bears and fish and she's a bird which means that she's a lover of beauty and you know she's sort of brought to this world in order to critique the world from an aesthetic point of view and the critique is for God who created the world but this is the first draft and us humans are here as God's critics and we're here to sort of pick up on all the things that are wrong and, and experience them and be attentive to them and sort of convey them to God so that when he makes the next draft of the world, those things will be improved. So yeah, she's here as a, as a, as somebody that would critique, that critiques the world and uh, aesthetically and in terms of beauty and meaning and order and, and that, that sort of thing. The bears are the ones who are interested in intimate, interpersonal relationships and the fish uh, are interested in like social justice and, and um, fairness and, and things like that. So her father's a bear and Annie's a fish and that makes all those love relationships very difficult because they're so different from each other. The book structure is an alternation between what's happening with Mira and, and broader explorations of different concepts, you know, our relationship with culture, as we age, um, why art is important and how it does what it does, why we are tired, sickness, <laughs> the many types of love and longing. I, what I'm what I'm not sure about, and probably where I'm, I'm failing as an interviewer or maybe as a reader, is is whether I can actually ask you about any of these things in particular. You know, as you talk about, people are categorized as fish and birds and bears, and we are being watched and evaluated by God or gods, and we are living in the first draft at the very end of the world. 
can we really talk about any of these outside of the book itself or do they dissolve when you try to pull them out of the narrative and look at them individually? I don't know. I hope they don't. I mean, I hope that I, I, I don't think that they dissolve. I mean, I, I always think that I want my books to map onto the world in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I want the sort of framework, the frameworks and the symbols and all that to, to have something to do with how a person is actually living and moving through their life. Um, because I, I, I don't see literature as an escape from life. I see it as a, as a way of going deeper into life. Um, you know, while you're reading the book and after you've read the book sort of to change the way things look a little bit. So I, I, I hope they don't dissolve. And maybe dissolve is the wrong word. It's just that they're, you know, they're so wrapped up in the character and what they're thinking and how they're, you know, kind of how they're engaging with their lives that it's, yeah, they're the concepts themselves and then the extent to which the people are entangled inside them. And mm-hmm. uh, so I guess that's what I'm talking about. It's like, it's, it, it seemed, um, you know, I'd love to talk about whether we're being watched and evaluated by the gods, uh, but I don't know if uh, if that really is an experience that Mira is having, or is that a, an idea that you're you're kind of wrestling with yourself? I think it's probably both. I mean, I want the, the things that I write down are things that seem plausible and you know potentially the truth of our, our world, um, not only. No, it's not. I don't think that I write in a fantastical way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm only interested in things that could be true, and so for me, all those things could be true. That you know, like as you're talking about the gods, like there's this one section where I talk about how the gods go inside us and use us to look at other people. And that certain moments in your life that feel especially heightened between you and other people are those moments when the God is inside you regarding them. You know, you can see them so supernaturally clearly. And so to me, that is the reason I would write something like that is to come up for an answer myself to the question of why are certain moments between you and other people, especially strangers or people you barely know, so heightened? and, and, you know, in, in terms of this book, which has gods in its cosmology, you know, that's, that seemed to me like an answer. They want to know what humans are like. And the only way they can know is to look through our eyes. Um, so, yeah, the gods are responsible for a lot in the book in terms of why we connect with certain people and not others. And also why we stopped connecting with certain people. Once the gods have left us, we don't have that same magic between us and somebody else, you know? So I think that I was just trying to find answers that I liked for these kind of mysteries. One of the themes that comes up in in different ways at different times is is the idea that we're at the end of the first draft that we're that we're in a sort of you know in an end times but not a permanent end times um but the end of this stage of existence can you yeah. talk about that a little bit i mean there's so many ways that that's true in this particular book because 
you know, she loses her father. And, and when you lose a parent or somebody close to you, it is the end of one stage of your life. You know, that existence in which they were part of your life is gone and can never be returned to. And it's not the end of your life, but it's the end of, it's the end of your life in, in, in one that's never recoverable. You know, for mm -hmm. me, I'll never have that life again in which my father is alive and interacting with me. So that's like, you know, it's like acts in a play. I'm going back to theater, you know, and then also, you know, Mira becomes middle-aged. And so that also is the end, the end of youth. That's another end. And so again, it's not the end of your life, but it's the end of that draft, let's say. And then also just with these, you know, I was reading books about the climate, about climate catastrophe and all that when I was writing this book and that gives you there's also that feeling like well this time in which we were more in harmony with nature I don't know 100 years ago or 150 years ago before all this industry like that's gone that's over and it's I don't think it's the complete end of the world but it's the end of some kind of relationship that we once had to the world you know and now we're in a different one and we will be in a different one so I think the book is a lot has a lot of those endings drafts sense of loss. That's sort of mm -hmm. what it's about in lots of ways. You also explore the uncertainty of, uh, you know, are we living the right way? Are we, are we doing the right things as a, um, you know, as an impulse that only some people worry about, but worry about quite deeply? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I, I want to be a moral and good person. And, and so I think I can't imagine, I mean, maybe there'll be a time when I'm writing books, and that's not something that I'm concerned with. But uh, I do care about that very deeply. There was a, there was a New Yorker interview where you talked about, and, and I think the quote is the circling, the self-doubt, the self as a clown of failed intentions. Um, is that all a part of that same impulse to know whether you're doing the right things in the right way? Yeah, I think I think no one can really say for sure that they're a good person or that they've, I just don't, there's really no way of knowing how to live or how to make decisions moment to moment. And, you know, we do the best we can. And um, I think there's always the feeling that one is failing in some way and that, or that one is failing or is a clown. I mean, I, I like the idea of the clown because it's, it's funny that we fail. Like it's, it's sad, but it's also ridiculous that we were put on earth to fail, that we were, given these lives and, and, and no way of knowing what we're supposed to do with them or how, I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's also absurd, you know? And, and I think I always would rather laugh, you know, than, than be sad about things because when it comes down to it, the whole project of living is absurd. And, and um, I, that's, that's how I move through life. I think more with that feeling than, than feeling a lot of shame and regret all the time. I just would rather, would rather not. This notion that that art may not be essential, but love is essential. And that I think comes up closer to the end of the book and just was, a, just sort of spoke volumes in terms of both Mira's challenges with the world and, uh, and the experience that we're going through as a reader at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's this question of will art always be necessary? Will art be necessary in the next draft? If the next draft is more perfect, does art only exist now because we live in this imperfect world that we need art to communicate? But in this draft, in any case for myself, speaking outside the book, um, Mm -hmm. you know, art making is a form, making art, writing books is a way of loving. Like it's a way of loving life. It's a way of loving other people. It's a way of establishing some kind of metaphysical connection with other people um, because your thoughts are in their head, your soul is like on display for them um, and, and, and wanting to give yourself, you know, and this, the part of yourself that is most, is the, the best part of yourself really, which is, you know, the purest and the most sincere and the most funny and the best ideas you can have and, and the patience that it takes to make a work of art. Like that part of yourself to give that, to want to give that to other people to me is an expression of love. That's, that's why I do it. You know, love for the love for the universe, love, love that I'm just like out of gratitude at being alive and also wanting to give something to other people that I think is beautiful. You've said in past interviews that I usually have the feeling that I'm doing something bad or wrong when I'm writing, which makes me excited. I, was that the case in this book? Was there a particular thing or an approach or a part of the book that felt especially bad or wrong as you were in it? Um, I mean, I just think that the maybe the formal changes and jumps, the, you know, the books, the, perhaps that. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I, I, I guess that sort of rebellious feeling against the received forms is what I'm talking about. You know, I always, it's, I guess it's interesting that everything comes down, like everything's so paradoxical about, about the self, because I just said that it's a gift you know, that it's an expression of love and wanting to give somebody something, but there's also this other part of, yeah, art making for me that is um, excited that I'm going to be condemned for what I do or that, that I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to do or that I'm being bad or, um, and so I guess it's both those forces together that create the book. Um, For most novelists, I think a it can be a piece of a story or even even a voice that can sustain a story that is the the germ that a book comes from. And that's you know, everyone from Agatha Christie to James Patterson to Elena Ferrante kind of talk about what those seeds are. What are the, the seeds of a Sheila Hetty novel? Um, I don't think he, I don't think I know at first. I think I know a year in or a year and a half in. Oh, I realized, oh, I'm still working on it. So I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that, that, that seed grew. Um, I think I can get very excited about things and then a month and a half later, not be excited about it anymore. So I, I don't think there's any surefire way of knowing I, the beginning always feels the same. The beginning always feels like an excitement. And then sometimes it's, you know, still born or whatever. Sometimes it's born. But for you, does it tend to be an idea? Is it a character's voice? Is it, as we were talking about before, like a, a concept that you want to explore or can it be, can it be anything for different works? I think actually what it is, is finding myself in a new, entirely new and kind of bewildering place in my life. And usually that more than anything else is, is an indication that 
that there's a, that whatever's coming is a new book. Cause often I'm, you know, for example, right now, like I'm starting books, but really they're actually the residue and the crumbs and <laughs> sort of the tracks of the last book. Cause I'm actually not in a new place. I mean, here I am talking to you about pure color. How could I be in a new place? <laughs> um, but I still want to write and I like writing and I enjoy it, but all the ideas I'm coming up with could be continuations of this last book. So not until, and I have no idea when that'll be, not until I'm actually in a new phase of life will the new book come. Because we're booksellers at heart, we like to get a picture of both your reading and your writing life. I'd love to go back in time a ways and, and, and talk about you as a reader, you know, what, what were the books that were around you when the idea of first being a writer started to take hold for you? Well, there are these books called, well, it was called, there was a series, but the first book in the series was called That Scatterbrain Bookie. Yes. By Bernice Thurman Hunter. And I guess it takes place in Toronto during the depression. And I, I suppose it's a memoir of sorts, but it's a, a book for, well, I was around 10 or so when I started reading it or maybe nine or eight, I don't know. But that those books were so important to me. That character, I felt like she was me. She wanted to be a writer. She was kind of mischievous. Um, the way they described her body looked, felt like, you know, sort of small and skinny. Like that was my body, blonde hair, mine. Like she was just me, you know, and lived mm -hmm. in Toronto even. And, um, but in a completely different time. And I, that book was one of the most, that was one of my favorite books for sure. I still give it to children, friends of mine. And how about as you were starting to work on, on your first collection of short stories that became the middle stories? Um, at that time, I really was inspired by a book called Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. Um, her language was just so captivating to me. And um, I was reading a lot of like Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and, and just a lot of fables and um, uh, Aesop, things like that. So th that also came into my, into my stories. A kind of lack of detail, a sort of a, a, a kind of like self-conscious storytelling mode, you know, like mm -hmm. it's not realism, mm -hmm. it's something else. So yeah, those, that, those, that was a big part of it. The Middle Stories was published by Nancy in 2001, your first book of short stories, and then your novella Ticknor was published in 2005. How would you contrast the writer of those first two books with the person who wrote Pure Color? Um... I mean, I always feel like I'm doing something I've never done before. So that hasn't changed. I always feel like I don't have a template um, from which to work. So in some ways, I feel like the same writer. Um, I have, I had no money then. And that was really hard. I, I, I do now. And I think that's the main difference. Like the anxiety the money anxiety that basically haunted me until my mid thirties, you know, am I going to be able to do this? What I most want, which is just to write and to do nothing else. It was, um, so that's, I mean, I guess that makes you, it didn't make me a different writer, but it just had, um, I just don't have that undercurrent of anxiety anymore. I kind of feel like for the most part, I'll probably be okay. Maybe not, you know, with, as, as a writer, if you stop writing, there goes, your income, 
but I, I, I think those real world things change you on a, on a cellular level, you know, being able to go to sleep, you know, with, with that confidence, you have money in the bank versus, I don't know, I'm going to pay for my rent, the, you know, pay my rent this month. Um, but I think the writer self hasn't changed. I think writing comes out of the exact same place for me. Um, so my life has changed on a, on one level, but not on another. I'd love to talk about some of the other projects that you've approached over the last few years. Can you tell me a little bit about the journal project that you did for the New York times? Yeah. So that's the, actually the book that I'm editing now. I've been working on it since 2010 as a book. Um, the, the premise is I took 10 years of diaries, which were on my computer and I sort of put them into Excel and, put the sentence and made Excel, like put the sentences in alphabetical order. So, so the book has sort of 26 chapters, A, B, C, D, and then within it, within A, you know, the sentences are also alphabetized. And I think I started with 350,000 words and now I'm down to 80,000. I'm trying to get it down to 60. And the editing has just been about sort of cutting, um, and trying to find some kind of meaning and rhythm in this, in these diaries, in these moments really that are taken out of a narrative, taken out of a story. But to me, there's a, still a story being told because, you know, the, the self I realize doesn't really change. And so even if chronology is gotten rid of, character isn't gotten rid of. And in fact, character becomes more apparent in some ways when you take away narrative. So it's, it's just been this fun experimental, you know, what happens when you, when you look at 10 years of diaries and, and did, you know, the question that, and that started the whole thing was like, have I changed? And I think my answer is no. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that actually kind of reassuring. I thought that at first that would have caused me, I, at first I felt sort of despairing about that, but now I find that kind of the most reassuring thing. You put your whole self into those journal entries and then put all of them into the, the New York times. What did you find that that process of, of alphabetizing was enough of a fig leaf to that sort of that feeling of nakedness that we have when we hand our journals over to people um, did it, did that give you the right, you know, kind of that right feeling of revealing without revealing? Yeah, I think so. And also the diaries are from so long ago now, you know, 2005 feels so long ago that I'm not, I don't feel connected to it in the same way. Mm -hmm. I don't feel exposed. I mean, I never feel exposed, particularly when I, when I actually have something ready for publication At, by that point, it feels some, like something separate from me, but I do think the distance and time also helped. I'd love to talk a little bit about your work as, as a reviewer. Um, and partly because you know, this book, Pure Color has at least one thread uh, that focuses on on the role of the critic, on the role of the person evaluating work, how um, how do you feel like you inhabit that role as as the evaluator, as the person who reads another person's books? I mean, what I do when I review books is I I really only review books that I love, um, and 
what I want to do or that I like. And what I want to do in my review is to sort of express what I think is the most interesting way to look at that book. So I'm not really trying to say whether it's good or bad or whatever. I just want to say, if we take this book as seriously as possible, like what are all the many things that it can show us? What can, you know, so it's, it's really just trying to look at the book in the most interesting and what I consider the best light, not to flatter the book, but to draw out its meanings um, in ways that I think maybe, maybe a reader might not find these particular meanings, but I did. And, and I really like just using book reviews as an opportunity to, again, like, like with my novels, like just to think about the world and think about what humans are and, and, and think about all the exact same things. But in this case, when I'm reviewing a book, I have that book to, to help me along rather than just whatever, you know, whatever my imagination comes up with. In, in an interview with, uh, with Dave Hickey that you did for The Believer, um, one of the questions that came up was, was how the role of the critic has changed. And, you know, does the, kind of does the role of, of critic as we've traditionally understood it even still exist? Do you, I mean, it was a, it was kind of a question that he was trying to answer, but I'm interested in your take on it. I mean, he was talk. he's an uh, art critic. And I think what he was saying was that the, the art critic has become, you know, for the worse, sort of a, 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 a tool or a pawn in this money game that is the world of contemporary art. Um, it's different for books, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for me to be a critic is just to be somebody who thinks in public. And, and I think that my favorite literary critics are those people where I read their reviews and it's, it's about the book, but it's also about the whole world and it's about their thinking and I'm watching them think through something and the book is an occasion for their thinking. You've worked as you've worked as an editor. You've done many, many interviews with some brilliant people. And it's, it's something that people who don't write interviews know, but taking a a conversation and giving it an interesting shape is its own kind of art form is is that something that you've come to enjoy over time, like the process of engaging with other people about their work? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I was especially interested in it a number of years ago. I don't I don't interview quite as much as I used to, though I still do some. Um, I think it's a way of being a playwright for me, actually, coming back to theater, um, because it is just dialogue, and I do a lot of editing. I don't change what the person says, but I you know structure I change the structure often or I used to when I worked as an interviews editor at the believer and what you want to and, and I kind of looked at the interviews as little plays you know like they the conversation starts somewhere and you know there's kind of drama or attention and it, it, it ends in, an, in a meaningful place yeah I, I always really liked trying to figure out like what is the best order for the questions? Um, what's what's best for the person to say up front? What, what is more interesting if they say it towards the end? Um, I always really liked getting down into the, into the um, just like the rhythm of the conversation and 
always my goal was to edit it in such a way that because at the believer we always showed the interview subject the interview before it was published and allowed them to make corrections if they wanted to my goal was always for them to think that no editing had been done so it was like trying to do that but also trying to preserve something of what actually genuinely happened well trying to preserve preserve the most important things about what happened but just to just to sort of heighten it and always I wanted to make the person look their best I mean I think there's a way that you can edit in which that's not your concern um but I figure like if we're reading somebody if we're featuring somebody it's it's because there's there's a kind of regard we have for them so um I think the interview is also like a form of respect and um that's what it was for me in any case in some of the interviews that you were doing around the time of how should a person be, it, it, it sounded like you were almost done with fiction for a while. You, you described this process of kind of you know, making up a person so you could put them through the paces. And and was that was that a passing feeling at the end of a book? Or is that something that you still struggle with as you're trying to find the best vehicle in which to explore ideas? I mean, I think after I wrote Tickner, I wanted to write books that were um, that were closer to a kind of journalism or philosophy or just not so imagined. Um, and I don't think I'm in that same place anymore. Like I think, I think motherhood was like that and how should a person be, but pure color kind of shook me out of that. Um, and I've just come to value the imagination much more. I mean, I think I didn't have access to my own imagination in my late twenties and through most of my thirties it's, and now I do again. So it's really just a matter of like what tools are available to you and, and your own self makes certain tools available to you at certain points in your life and withdraws them at others. Um, so I, I, I think of it more that way than as some kind of, um, like predetermined um, aesthetic argument that I think people should follow. You know, for myself as an artist, I just, I work with what, what, what comes, what, what feels interesting, what I'm interested in. And I just wasn't interested in my imagination at that time. And I think I am more now. And why do you think that opened up for you? Um, I think I probably just got tired of working in that other way. <laughs> In how should a person be? Um, you did a you did a fair amount of revision between its Canadian publication and its American publication, and and that's a that's a reasonably rare thing for uh, for an author to do. And I'd I'd love if you could talk a little bit about what made you decide. Yeah, I want to. I'd like to crack this open and go back into it before it gets published again. I, mean, I don't think it was a a ton of revision. It was some, but. I mean, when I published it in Canada, it just didn't quite feel done to me. And I thought, well, maybe that's just the nature of this book. It can't feel done because it's too close to my life. And I just, and so when I published it, I just, I just kind of had this feeling like this book, can't, yeah, like I just said, can't feel done. But then after it was published and in a book form, I saw it as an object apart from me. Um, it became done because it had been published. And then when I had the opportunity a year or two later to publish it in the US, I thought, I wonder, I wonder if I can actually finish it to my own inner satisfaction now. Um, 
and and yeah, I, I felt I could, you know, I, I went back over every page and every sentence and I just looked at it all over again and, and felt like I was able to finish it. And, and people asked me at that time, well, are you going to edit it again if there's another edition? But no, I, I thought, no, I'll never touch it again. It's done now. And is it, was that a, was that a kind of a passing experience just for that book or are there others that you, you know, given the chance you might, uh, you might open up again? No, it was just that book. It was just that book. You you talked a little bit about it earlier, you know, the, this idea that all you wanted when you were younger was to be a writer and to be able to just sit and write things forever. Um, as do you feel like you've landed in that place where you've you know, built the combination of of career and you know and supporting infrastructure to be able to make that happen now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's my dream come true. Like it's it's really just, um, you know, I remember being a little girl and <laughs> playing sick all the time and staying home from school and and just writing and just thinking this is all I this is just what I want my life to be I just want to be able to stay home in bed all day and make art (laughs) and that's kind of what I do and I just am really um yeah I don't I don't know what 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 else would make me so happy so I I feel really lucky about that and um as long as it lasts I'll I'll be happy that it that it's lasting Sheila Hetty, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Sheila Hetty, author of the new novel, Pure Color, and many other books as well. Visit Kobo.com slash conversation to find every book we discussed gathered for your convenience in one tidy place, or click on the link in the show notes. We hope you already subscribed to the show and aren't at risk of missing a single episode, but if not, now's a good time to hit the subscribe button. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.